Welcome to the UCLA Anderson Fully Employed MBA Program Podcast, Drive Time. My name is Dylan Stafford and I am your host this week. And this is a very special podcast. I am with faculty member Jennifer Whitson, who is an assistant professor here at UCLA Anderson in Management and Organizations. And I've had the, the pleasure of getting to know her just in the last couple of months, actually. Um, she's new to UCLA and, and you'll hear her where she came before, where she was teaching before and doing her research prior to coming to UCLA. We're going to talk a little bit about that and why she chose UCLA. But mostly I know uh, Professor Whitson because she just helped us greet the entering class of 2019. She was the professor who taught our entering 2019s in Section 1, one of our all-day Saturday sections. And her students are now, they've moved forward and being taught by Senior Associate Dean Margaret Shee. So, they're having a wonderful education their first quarter. So um, thank you for being willing to have this podcast interview. I'm happy to be here. This is fun. I'm, I'm getting less nervous interviewing faculty members, so you, you, I won't be so verklempt. <laughs> when I interviewed Dean Shee, I was quite verklempt. <laughs> so this is going to be much more lively. Well, why don't we start with a little bit about your background? Um, I know you're a California native, but then you you, had, you left for over a decade before you made your way back. Want to tell people a little bit about about you about you? Um, yeah, I mean, my life has actually come full circle, which is really great. So I, you know, I am a Southern California native, and my undergraduate uh, institution was UC Irvine. So go Anteaters! Oh, very good, very good. Uh, but then I got my PhD from the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University, where I got my first serious experience with snow, <laughs> uh, which was definitely an education. And I was uh, hired at the University of Texas at Austin when I graduated from Kellogg, and then I'm very excited to have returned to California here um, at the UCLA Anderson School of Management. Oh, that's great. Well, yeah, I've, I've, I have a sort of shadow life to you because my MBA was from Chicago, and then I'm a Texas Aggie. So we have the we have Irvine and Los Angeles We're parallel to each other. Yeah. And now we now we finally meet. <laughs> Well, along so along the way, you fell in love with management and organizations. Mm -hmm. That's that's your research field. That's that's your area of expertise. How did how did you get into that? I mean, well, I've always been interested in how people interact with the world around them. So my undergraduate degree was in social psychology, uh, and when I was graduating, you know, I was thinking more and more about how we spend half or more of our waking hours in organizations. Wow. You know, at work, managing other people, driving to or from work, worrying about work, um, you know, and now that cell phones are everywhere oh and smartphones are everywhere, there's very few times in which we're not working um, or couldn't be working at the drop of a hat if someone texts us or we get that call from someone else. And so it's becoming sort of ever more important how we interact with organizations, how we build organizations, how organizations work in the world around us. And organizations are fundamentally made up of people. You know, they work the way they do because of decisions people have made. Uh, and, you know, the, the way people make those decisions is driven in large part by psychology and social psychology and how we process information from the world around us and how we our personal preferences, our biases um, might drive that decision making. And so I do think that, you know, for quite a long time, that's been the, the core of my fascination is sort of like the human element of this, this world of institutions that we've built around ourselves. And so a mm -hmm. lot of times we refer to things as, 
you know, oh, the banks or like, oh, this sector. Mm -hmm. And, you know, ultimately when you get down to it, those are all built of people. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I think that's where sort of like the, the heart of my interest lies and why I'm so happy being in, in a department that looks at management organizations because, you know, that, that's sort of critically, you know, I think a very important element of my research and research in general. Well, and, and, and speaking of your research, and don't use too many words I can't understand, but you know, let's geek out a little bit. You know, like how, how did you, how did you come to focus in the areas that are important to you and, and what, what do you like about the areas that you've, you've focused on? I know power and control negotiations mm -hmm. you mentioned are some of your... Yeah. The best way to summarize my research is that I look at control and power. But the thing that really brought me into it um, was, you know, a period of time in graduate school where I was getting my PhD. Uh, I'm sure... You know, everybody listening right now who is in grad school is aware of how you might not feel the greatest sense of control over your environment during this experience. And I mean, that was where I was as well. Uh, my advisor was also going up for tenure, so he was in a situation where he wasn't feeling a great amount of control. And, you know, there was this brief, very popular news story about a water stain under a Chicago bridge that looked like a person. And I remember looking at that water stain. I mean, I knew it was a water stain, but man, it was a water stain that looked a lot like a person. <laughs> and, you know, it, it, it just struck me that there might be a connection between these two states. And there was a lot of research out there that looked at people seeing these illusory patterns mm -hmm. in a lot of different contexts. And nobody had actually you know, deep-dived it in a way where they were looking at what might cause it. But if you looked at the research, there were a lot of correlations between situations where people like might not have that much control and they were engaging in, in, in this kind of perception. So, you know, what I did for my dissertation um, and work that I'm still, you know, working on now and then moving forward with is I, I looked at all of these phenomenon as connected. So the idea is that illusory patterns can happen across a number of different levels. You can see them at the level of data, faces and static, people and water stains, trends in the stock market, you know, none of it, you know, unreal trends in the stock market. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you could see causal connections between events that aren't real. So I walked underneath a ladder. That's why there's a dent in my car. We made this product red. It sold well. Let's make all of our products red. Um, you could even see maybe connections between people that aren't that real. So conspiratorial in nature, perhaps, like is the board of directors plotting against me? Is it time to start shredding paper? And um, what I looked at in my dissertation is whether lacking control or feeling like you lack control over the situation increased all of these perceptions. Mm. And I found that that was the case, right? So when people lack control, they were much more likely to engage in all kinds of illusory pattern perception. Hmm. And, you know, that's that's sort of driven my, my research from from this point on is when we don't feel a sense of control of our environment, how does it change the way we process information? Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're going to make very different decisions about the world if you think that there's a conspiracy out there to get you. If you think oh, that, for sure. Yeah. If yeah. You, you know, if you think that red products would just sell well because they're red and not because of any reason, then, you know, that's that can be that can have some pretty big magnitude of effect. Mm hmm. Uh, and, you know, related to that, I also look at power and how power changes the way we perceive other people or mm. interact with them. And so there's a long... Like power differentials or... So, oh, that's a great question. So, so a sense of power, right? Okay. So the, you know, usually you would get 
a, a differential sense of power. You know, if you're in an organization and, you know, there's your boss and you're reporting to your boss. Your boss has more power than you. You're going to feel low power in, in interactions with your boss. Um, but, you know, it can actually happen in a lot of different contexts. So there's probably... People probably do have an inherent sense of power. Some people probably do feel inherently more powerful than others. But I really think a huge difference is created by the situation they're in. So mm -hmm. you can imagine like a powerful CEO, you know, commander of all she surveys, and you know, then she goes home for the holidays and her, her parents are bossing her around about how to hang the Christmas lights. So she reverts and, to Yeah, so you're low power. Old. You know, you're low power. Your parents are like, you're not hanging those right. Like, that's not, that's not, this is, no, it's completely, take, take them down. We'll just do it. And, you know, then you're low power in that situation, right? Mm -hmm. You can think of, you know, the average, the average high schooler, probably pretty low power, you know, mm -hmm. pretty out of control. But if, if one of them's babysitting, they're in a position of much more power in that situation, right? Like they do have a lot of control over the outcomes of like the kids are babysitting, they're evaluating them. And so even though there might be individual differences, I think there's also very strong situational differences in our own sense of power. Mm -hmm. And that each of those changes the way that we, we think about other people or that we think about opportunities in our environment or risks or dangers in our environment. And, you know, just to give away the punchline, my research on power generally finds that, um, the you know the the powerful are less aware um, and less attuned to risks and dangers in their environment. Oh, and you know there's another there's a false a, confidence, possibly or it's sort of. If it's it's not it's it's actually so. This is the cool thing. It's not that they see the danger and think to themselves, "Oh, I can handle that," right? Which is what false confidence would be. Okay. Um, it's like they don't even really see it as a danger. Like it just doesn't even it doesn't even register. Um, and so, which is all the more dangerous. Yeah, yeah. And so it's like this is this is related to a line of research that that I, I connected to, but had been begun before I got there, where people were finding that the powerful are much more likely to act, like they're just much more active, right? So you can hmm. put people. You know, my favorite. I wasn't even on this paper, but I love this experiment. Um, you can you can put people in a room, really cold room, air conditioning's on high, fan. Uh, a table fan that usually rotates isn't rotating. It's just sitting on the table, blowing directly in their face in this chilly, freezing room. And you take half of them and you induce a sense of power. And you take the other half, you induce, induce a sense of lacking power. What you find is the people in the room who feel powerful are significantly more likely to just reach over and turn off the fan. Wow. Right? Something like that little. As black uh, and white as that. Black, I mean, well, yeah. that that's so like... they, they act. They literally act to change. They're more likely to act to change their environment. Um, in a way to make it more suitable to themselves. And what I was interested in is why is this? Is it the false confidence? Is it that they just think, well, I don't care if anybody gets angry at me about this? Or is it they literally just are less aware of why they might not want to do that? And I have a paper that shows, like, if you present people with a list of um, things that might make it more likely that they'll achieve their goal um, and things that might mean that trying to achieve their goal is risky or might be dangerous, uh the people who we've, we've we've put in a position of power remember just as many advantages as the people who we've put in a position of lacking power. No mm -hmm. differences there. Everybody sees the reasons why this might pay off. Um, but the people in the position of power remember far fewer of the potential dangers. Hmm. Like it just it doesn't even... Um, and when we ask them to speculate about potential dangers in the future, we gave them a little scenario and we asked them to forecast what might happen in this particular situation, the powerful were less able to think of potential challenges. Like they didn't even, when they were writing about what would likely happen, 
much smoother sailing mm-hmm. than the individuals who, who felt like they lacked power and, and were writing about like potential dangers or threats in the environment. So there's a way in which like the threats and risks just loom larger for people who lack power. Um, and you know, my argument is that's part of what's driving this active orientation of the powerful. Um, and maybe part of the reason why you'll occasionally see very, very powerful people become engaged in political scandals where you literally cannot imagine why they thought that was a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and it might be that they, they couldn't imagine mm-hmm. that it might not be a bad idea. They just couldn't even see yeah. the pitfall yeah. that they're now mired in. Or... Yeah, exactly. So if I'm a FEMBA student and I'm, I'm looking at the next 10 or 20 years of my career, you know, that your research can help me to start to have a, a deeper sense of my own mm-hmm. foibles, possibly. And, and also then the environment that I'm going to be accountable for as a manager, director, vice president for the rest of my career. That, that How can I expect my employees to make great decisions if I've amped up a high-stress environment where they are disempowered? Yeah. And I mean, and some environments are just stressful no matter what, but some people induce right. chaos for, for whatever reason. And I think it's really important to be aware that if you're if your employees are going into situations where they lack control, maybe like layoffs are a danger, maybe there's been a severe industry shock, um, you know, maybe the markets are just in upheaval and this is something that's gonna significantly affect their ability to do their jobs, then you know, they might be more likely to to be seeing things that aren't there. And and can you provide something that makes them feel a greater sense of control? Can you provide some measure of predictability? Even if you can't, you know, fix the economy. Uh, <laughs> can you, can you at the very least at the work environment provide some sense of structure? Um, so that people do have something that they can, you know, they can hold on to and retreat to and they won't feel as much of a sense of lacking control over their whole environment. Well, thank you for that. I, it's, it's fascinating. I love to get a little inside look into the world as, as you've spent your, your career researching it. Um, so now you've educated me, but now, now it starts to get more, more, even more interesting because I'm curious. So, um, you know, why did you say yes to UCLA Anderson? What had this be the destination for this next chapter of your career? I mean, I think the vibrant intellectual community is just, you know, I, it's amazing. Um, you know, I really love the liveliness of the faculty, the productivity of the faculty. And I had heard good things about the students. Um, and so I was excited about that, but you know, I hadn't actually like with the faculty, you can talk to people in a meeting and then you can go back and forth and be like, this person's great. I like this person, but they don't let you test teach a class. Uh, <laughs> Not so, until you get here, exactly. you meet the students. Yeah, yeah. and so uh, it was also like once I got here, I was really thrilled by the student population at UCLA mm. Anderson. Like I think that they're just on it in a way that's like a real deep pleasure to be, you know, uh, like, you know, not only managing, but also a participant in those class discussions and, Mm. you know, watching people build off one another and play with ideas and, you know, and kick arguments back and forth um, has just been awesome. Mm. Yeah. Well, again, I grew up in Texas. I grew up in East Texas. We had a, a very monolingual, it just was not nearly the interesting world that California is. We, you know, I love to say United Nations meets Hogwarts. <laughs> we have 30 nationalities, 30 heritages, you know, in an average entering class. That's so awesome. that's the United Nation component. And then the Hogwarts metaphor to me is every time Ron, Hermione, and Harry round the corner at Hogwarts, something magical is going to happen. And, and here we have 
a working professional student body who's going to apply this education tomorrow morning. They're going to hire each other as they go through the program. They're going to form companies together. They're going to take these global immersions around the world. They're going to do the global access program. They're going to consult the C-suite of an international high-growth, high-tech company. And we, we can track, uh, Professor Foster has, it's over $700 million worth of investment decisions have been made by alumni gap companies based mm -hmm. on the master's thesis output of our students. So, yeah, kicking ideas and then and then kicking those ideas into action. Mm -hmm. So, sorry for the Femba commercial, but I love that. About yeah, no, that. that's and, fantastic. And and that you could you could then be more than satisfied as you met our students. So let's drill all the way down to what was it like to have your your FEMBA section? You had section one for mm -hmm. four hundred nine. What what were some of your takeaways from the week of leadership foundations? I mean, they were great. So I was I was really excited um, to be able to teach uh, fully employed MBAs. So my very first teaching experience at Kellogg was actually with fully employed MBAs, but I did not ah. have the opportunity to you know to teach them in Texas. Okay. Uh, and so I I was really excited when I realized that I would have this chance to teach um, fully employed MBAs like Section One. And hello, Section One, if you're listening, um, <laughs> I miss you guys. And so, yeah, it was it, it was fantastic. I think the, the thing I love about the FEMBA program is that the things that we're talking about in class, that we're chewing on, that we're like we're, we're bringing to each other and developing and testing are things people can turn around, take out of the classroom and apply to their lives, you know, that night, the next day. And then we can come back together again and, and talk about it again. How did it go? You know, mm -hmm. what worked? What didn't work? What are the nuances or ripples that, like, you know, we didn't foresee here? Mm. And I think that's really fantastic that the process can be so iterative. I mean, I know whenever I've been learning about big concepts or big ideas that I've been very excited about, if I don't have a chance to go out and test them and see which parts of them work and which parts of them don't, you know, there's always some part of the idea that you think you understand well, but you don't really quite. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. you go out and you play around with it, and you're like, oh, wait, now I, now I see, now I see how this is really supposed to work. But you only get to that moment by trying it out. Mm -hmm. And so if, you, if you've been in isolation just learning all these things, it's really cool, like you're really getting to do that, but none of the testing's happening. And so the fact that you can you know, have both these incredibly intellectual high-level conversations, but you can also turn them immediately to practical ends and test them and then come back around and move them back up to that level uh, is, I think, you know, one of the things that's like a real deep pleasure of the program. And I know it was a deep pleasure for me in LF is just like people could bring up work experiences, like multiple work experiences for the concepts that we're talking about. And so it was exciting that there was there was so much material and so much lived experience that each of the students were able to like fit into these frameworks that we were talking about um, that you know mirrored and you know was in conversation with you know the research and the models and the things that that I was bringing to them but like the things that were really bringing the research and the models to life were the students mm -hmm. and I think that's what made for such a great class is that you know the the and I, I know from talking to other instructors like this is this is a quality that you know all the FEMBAs share, just that willingness to share of themselves and their own experiences and dive right into, you know, like, like this intellectual pool and, and, and like not be timid about like throwing that out there and recognizing, you know, how it's all connected and how it's all speaking, you know, to one another. 
And so I think that's that's one of the things that I really like about LF. I think it's interesting just in you know, we in, in society we, we we say that medical doctors practice medicine, mm. lawyers practice law. We don't use necessarily the language that mm. business professionals practice business. Mm -hmm. But we do. We we learn you know, management is a learned I mean, you want to have a rigorous intellectual framework to start that improves your odds for success, but then you, you have to make it your own. Yeah. And it is iterative, and sometimes your team doesn't like the way you ran the meeting. You know, like, we, we all yeah. learn these things by living. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, you know, everyone out there who's had a bad manager understands <laughs> that it's possible to manage, like, better and manage worse. Yeah, there's and, a continuum. <laughs> yeah, there is a continuum. And and so, you know, there there's but there's a lot of frameworks and there's a lot of techniques, and so the question is, how do you do that and how do you internalize that? So one of the things that I've, I've had the opportunity to do in my career thus far is, is teach negotiations for over 10 years. And one of the things that I made certain was, you know, at the core of my course, and that I'm actually really happy is also at the core of, of the negotiations courses, you know, in the M&O department here uh, as well, is practice. Right. I thought of them almost as a boot camp. And so, mm -hmm. you know, we would negotiate and then talk about the concepts and the frameworks and the tactics and then go back and negotiate again and then do it again. And so it wasn't a matter of, you know, looking only at the concepts and the research and then saying, you know, good luck with that. Your next negotiation a year from now, I hope it goes well, um, you know, but rather being like, all right, great. We just talked about this. Here's a partner, go negotiate this. Like, here's a role, here's a situation, work on it. Because mm -hmm. a lot of people are, are, you know, afraid of negotiating. It's, it's intense. It's nervous making, right? You don't want to mess it up. And there's a lot riding on many of the negotiations that people engage in. And so, you know, one of the best things that I could do in designing that course was give people a chance to practice, 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 practice until some things became second nature. And until until good practices became second nature, you know, because I really believe that when you're in an intense situation, you know, we don't rise to the requirements of the situation. We fall to the level of our training. And so you have to train yourself for the level of performance that you want to have so that when you are in those intense situations, when you are caught off guard, when you are surprised, um, you are reacting instinctively in a way that's really productive for that situation rather than getting to the other side of that situation and thinking, man, if I had more time to think about that, I would have, I would have done better at it. Um, and I think that's also very important for managers. You know, when we're talking about what we're, what we're learning in M&O, when we're talking about the conversation we're beginning in LF, um, so much of it is how do you change the way you think about people in organizations and managing them or being managed by them so that when you see a situation start to go wrong, you can interact with it productively. Or even when you see a situation where everything's sort of fine but not great, how can you interact with it to supercharge it, to get people motivated rather than just showing up, to get people willing to share really exciting innovational ideas rather than just the ones that they think people will probably approve of? <laughs> uh, you know, like how do you get folks to go the extra mile? And And a lot of that, you know, when it comes to it, will be instinctive responses to situations, but those instinctive responses are going to be built out of the knowledge and the practice that people have gained in this program. 
Well, as we as we come to the end of our time together, uh, you know, just I want to I want to thank you for um, for saying yes to Dean Olean and coming to UCLA Anderson. We're you know we're lucky to have you, um, and and thanks for really giving us an overview of. I mean, these are big areas: illusory pattern perception, power and control, negotiations. You know, these are these are the the big frameworks that we all live in. And to bring in a, a level of awareness to that, you know, that's what you yourself and, and your entire, you know, the MNO faculty here, you know, make that contribution that I think pays off for the three years you're in FEMBA, but for the 30 years after. Exactly. That's, that's just amazing. So, um, you know, thank you for taking the time with us today. Um, I, I happen to know this. A little bird told me that they just got the Leadership Foundation feedback uh, read this week, and you did incredibly well. So thank you so much for launching the, the Section 1 FEMBAs into, in the class of 2019 into their three-year journey. Um, any parting thoughts, anything you'd like to leave our listeners with? Just that I'm really glad to be here. Um, I'm very glad that I made the move. I, it was wonderful. Hello, Section 1. Um, stay in touch. And um, hello to all the future sections. I'm really looking forward to all the future classes that I will get to teach um, with, with the incoming MBAs. Well, thank you very much for listening to this week's Drive Time podcast. This was Assistant Professor Jennifer Whitson here at UCLA Anderson and Management and Organizations. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, and we look forward to sharing another wonderful interview with you next week.